To truly understand the human soul is to understand what is lost and broken. Relationship with the Lord. It's about seeing, I can't, God can. That the gospel is the remedy to fix all things. Every struggle, every circumstance, every relationship, everything. To understand the soul is to know that God meets you where you are, but he doesn't leave you there. That the gospel isn't just good news for tomorrow, but good news for today. That the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. It's about both God saving us and sanctifying us in Christ. To understand the soul is to recover a right understanding and application of the gospel, the redeeming work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Horatio Spafford was an affluent man who lived in Chicago. He'd invested most of what he owned into real estate. And in the great fire of Chicago in 1871, he lost it all, including his own home. No insurance, business destroyed. He worked to try and recover and rebuild the business. And after a few years, he, uh, in 1873, sent his wife and four daughters on a ship back to England. He lost his son a few years ahead, uh, before that to scarlet fever. His wife and four daughters take off, and they're on the ship back to England, and a few days into their trip, he gets a telegram from his wife that simply reads, saved alone. What should I do? The ship had wrecked and his four daughters had drowned. Horatio jumped on the next ship that was going back to England and as he passed over the watery grave of his four daughters, he panned these words that you might know. He said, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, when all is lost and you've given me what is here, it is well, it is well with my soul. How many know the old hymn, it is well, it is well with my soul? How is it possible that a man who has experienced such tragedy and such trauma and such just horrendous things happening in his world, he's lost all that he owned and now he's lost all five of his kids and it's he and his wife left alone. How could a man who's experienced such trauma and such tragedy, how is it that a man experiencing that could write, it is well with my soul? Have you ever met someone who seems to just live from a different place? 
Have you ever been around someone that, man, regardless of the circumstance, it's not that they're unaffected by the circumstance, it's not that there's maybe some sorrow or some difficulty or some anguish or some anxiety as as a result of the circumstance, but they just seem to live from a different place. There seems to be something inside of them that effervesces, that comes to the surface, that that seems to guide the way in which they respond to life. There's an inner life that affects the outer life, not the other way around. You ever met someone like that? I have, I've, I've, I've met a few, but a good friend of mine, his name's Larry Ontiveros. Lives in New York, Albany, New York. Larry's 75 years old, and he and his wife, Michaeline, they care for or cared for their 100-year-old mother who just passed away recently. He also had a daughter who was involved in a horse accident, and when they went in to do surgery, the doctor... Did I lose my mic? All right, this is going to be really hard for an Irishman to, you know, not use both hands, but we'll make it work, all right? Larry cared for his 100-year-old mother and also had a daughter who, when she went in for surgery, the doctor made a mistake, and it ended up that she was paralyzed for the rest of her life. But there was something about Larry. He lived from this different place. He was, once again, not that he was affected or unaffected by the circumstances, but that that there was something that he just lived from this different place. It was the inner life that seemed to control the outer life. We're going to start a series today where we're going to talk about and look at the inner life. Because how many of you know each one of us has an outer life and we have an inner life, right? Uh, We all have an outer life which is public, right? It's the piece of me that you see, my amazingly good looks. Yes, thank you. Man, you guys are a tough crowd. But the outer life, right, that's the piece of me that that you see. That's the piece of us that that people bump into. There's the accomplishments. There's the work. There's the reputation. All of those things that are visible, all of those things that are a part of my outer life. But you and I also have an inner life. And that inner life is a piece of us that holds the secrets and the thoughts and the wishes and the dreams. It really is who we are. And this morning, we want to dive in. We want to take a look at at what we're really talking about, this inner life. When we talk about the inner life of a human being, what we're really talking about is a human being's soul. Now, it's not something that we talk about much. It's not something that's maybe part of our modern vernacular. It's not something that uh, we, we kind of dive into and, you know, how's your soul today? We don't kind of walk around asking those questions, although I think there's been a great book written like that. But we don't walk around really kind of asking those kinds of questions. And so because the inner life is, is internal, it's invisible, it's not something that we talk about. In fact, it's something that if we're honest, we oftentimes neglect. But what we're talking about is the soul. What is the soul? That's the question. 
We want to take the next three weeks to not only answer the question, what is the soul, but to understand how God designed our soul and what, how, what part the soul plays in our world and in our life. And how is it that you and I could have a thriving life as it says in 3 John chapter 2, that may it go well for you as it goes well for your soul. And so we want to understand what is this thing called the soul. Now our culture doesn't talk much about the soul. Uh, it's not, like I said, it's not a word that we talk very much about. In fact, uh, in the Enlightenment, which was back in the 1600s, which has impacted and influenced so much of modern thought, they kind of denied the fact that you even had a soul they kind of looked at you as if you were just a brain on a stick. And so you kind of just responded to inputs and outputs. And so there were just neurons all firing about in your brain. And man, I don't have a soul. I just respond to whatever's going on around me. And I just react and I respond based on what the neurons are doing inside my brain. When we look at culture, we, we don't really, you know, there's Oprah. Oprah kind of talks a little bit about the soul, but she has this super soul TV. And, uh, and it's kind of this weird, kind of ethereal, kind of God, mystical part. And if you watch anything, it gets just more and more confusing. Oprah, what are you talking about? What about yoga, right? You know, yoga, we talk about, uh, they talk about mind and body and spirit. And there's this idea that if you can have your mind, your thinking center in alignment with your heart, which is the, or your spirit, which is your center of emotions, if you can get these two things aligned, then guess what? You'll, you'll have harmony and peace and life will be as you want it to be. But what is the soul? Culture hasn't given us a great definition of the soul. And I think the reason why is because the soul isn't something that culture invented. It's not something that society invented. It's not just a good idea that somebody had. The soul is actually designed and created by God himself. And if I could say it this way, the soul is really the life center of every individual. The soul, it's not something that's a part of you. It is you. We use the phrase, how many souls were lost at sea? It's not a part of you, it, it is you. And it's this central part of you, it's the, the kind of the central nervous system, if it were, that, that brings life and animation and meaning to all that you are. And so the soul is the life center of every human being. The soul is you. And the soul is created by God. God breathed into you. In fact, the Bible, when it uses the word soul, it uses a Hebrew word that means breath. And there's this really interesting passage or a little verse found in very early on in Scripture. It's found in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. And it says there in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground. Do you know that you're really nothing more, one part water, one part dust, right? That's what God, he formed the man out of the dust of the earth. But do you notice he's not alive yet? He's simply formed. And it goes on and it says, and God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. 
And so we understand that this soul actually is not a, a, a man idea, it's not an invention, it's not a biological term, a psychological term, a physiological term. It has its origin and its genesis in God himself. Because God formed you, but he breathed into you and he brought you to life. That's your soul. Your soul is the life center of who you are. You are a soul created by God. In fact, could I say it this way? That you and I, whether you're a follower of Jesus Christ or not, every single one of us, we're created by God. We're created by God. We're made for God. And we're made to depend and to need God himself. This is why you have a soul. It's because of what God has done in creating you and bringing life to who you are. But one of the things that we notice in the culture in which we live, that we, we now understand that, hey, the Bible makes it really clear that you're in my soul, who we are, was created by God. It's by God's design and by God's intent, and it's that we would need him and bring glory to him. But one of the things, if you are around our culture, and it doesn't take a long time to realize this, is that our culture has replaced the word soul with self. In fact, not just the word, the whole idea of soul has been replaced by self. And you see it everywhere. You gotta believe in yourself, don't you? You gotta express yourself. Man, if somebody's hating on you, you gotta love yourself, right? And thanks to Parks and Rec, at least once a year, we all gotta treat yourself. <laughs> As if buying new toys makes me a better human being. But what's happened in our culture is that this idea of the soul which was created by God to need him, to, to rest in him, to put trust in him, to depend on him, this idea of our soul has been replaced uh, even in language, but in ideology and in worldview, in belief system, in the way that we function, in the way that we operate. Soul has been replaced by self because it's all about us so far as our culture is concerned. And it really doesn't matter, you know, you could watch TV and watch movies and you recognize, and I challenge you to do that this week, just take some time as you're watching TV, as you're watching movies, maybe some of your favorite shows, maybe some commercials and advertisements that are going on on TV. Just watch and see how much our culture has swapped out this idea of soul, which was created for God and replaced it with self. It's all about me. And I gotta be happy, and I gotta express myself, and I gotta believe in myself, and I gotta be fulfilled, and I gotta treat myself. You see, the soul, the self, is a standalone, do it yourself unit, while the soul reminds us that we're not our own, that we are actually created for God. He's the reason why we exist. We don't exist for ourselves and our own purposes and our own plans and our own thoughts. And so it stands to reason, doesn't it, that if the soul has been replaced by self in our culture, then there's a war that rages against your and my soul. And it's not, it's not a surprise to God. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll read that together. I think it's going to be on the screen. But in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, it says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles... 
Do you notice that? Peter is writing to fellow believers and he's saying, hey, I want you to know something. I want you to understand something as I'm going to about to talk to you about this war that's raging against your soul. I need you to understand something. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're following him, you need to understand that this planet is not your home. You're on a journey. You're just passing through. And so he's saying to these believers, and he's saying by, uh, by, to us, he's saying, hey, you are a sojourner, and you are an exile, and, and as that, you're to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Now, I want you to see something here, because Peter's writing, and he's saying, hey, you're, you're on a journey. You're, this is not your home, and so you're just passing through. And so because you're passing through, I want you to abstain, stay away from those things that would try to corrupt you and try to pollute you, try to make it all about you, and I want you to stay away from those things because they're trying to wage war against your inner man, your soul. Now watch what he says. He goes on and he says, verse 12, keep your conduct you see something there? He's speaking to the soul. There's a war that wages against your inner life. But now, because you understand the war, because you're abstaining from those things that would try to corrupt your inner man, now your conduct, right, ought to be, among the Gentiles, ought to be what? Honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works. And this is so, so important. We're going to unpack this this morning. And glorify God on the day of visitation. See what's happening in this verse, these two verses? What Peter is trying to communicate is there, there's a war. You were created. Your soul was created by God. It's by God, for God, so that you would glorify him, so that you would honor him and live for him and depend upon him. The culture in which we operate and live, and this is not kind of some new phenomenon. It's been going on for millennia. The war, there's a war that's raging against your soul. And it's trying to make it all about you versus you being all about God. But I want you to see something that what happens on the inner life of a human being impacts and affects what happens on the outer life. And what happens on the outer life as well as what happens on the inner life is actually supposed to bring glory to God. And so... We, what we understand is that, and it's not news to you that we are in a battle, that we are in a war, is it? I mean, it really doesn't take much. Just flip on the TV, turn on the news, and what do we see? We see all kinds of, uh, of chaos and decay and destruction from school shootings to greed to power, you know, political corruption, all kinds of things that are just eating away at the fabric of our society, the fabric of what God created. There's a war that's happening in the world in which we live. There's all kinds of ideologies and worldviews and belief systems that, man, if we, can, if we would believe those things, they're going to promise us something that they can never, ever deliver. There's a war going on against your soul. But the other thing I want us to understand this morning is that not only is there an external war against you, there's an internal war that goes on within us. There's a battle that every single one of us has and is in and because it's inside, sometimes we neglect it and don't think about it. But there's a war that rages against our soul. It rages against every single one of us. It rages against mom and dad. It rages against our kids. It rages against those who are old, those who are young. It doesn't, it's no respecter of persons. The war rages against every single human being's soul. In fact, we recognize as a church 
that that's a battle that we want to help our high school students win. And if you're a parent of a high school student this week, you probably should have got an email from us that, that just details something that we're doing this summer, which is really designed to help your kids better understand worldview, better understand the battle that's raging against them. We want to help them. We want to equip them so that as they go off to college, they're not going off ill-prepared for the battle that's going to happen, but they're going off to college fully equipped in their faith and with their reason to be able to take a stand and, and glorify God in their soul, not live for themselves and so if you didn't get that email you want to get more information there's some there's a table out in the lobby we would love for you to go check that out because we understand there's a battle raging against us right and and so we we want to know how is it that we win this battle if it's something that rages against us, something that never stops, something that just keeps going day in and day out, and it, and it employs every mechanism and contraption and thing that you could imagine that's warring against our soul, how do we win that battle? How is it that you and I recover the soul? If the soul was certainly created by God, for God, to teach us to trust him and to lean in and depend upon him, how is it that we recover that? How is it that we live the kind of life like Horatio Spafford, that in spite of trauma, in spite of pain, in spite of suffering, in spite of difficulties, we can say it's well with my soul? How do we get to that place? How is it that we could live not buffeted by circumstance, but flourishing because of something that is going on inside of our life. And this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to take a look at a story, and it's really the story of Scripture. It's the gospel, actually. Some call it the meta-narrative of Scripture. But, but, you know, sometimes when we talk about winning a war, you've maybe heard the old adage that, you know, if you're going to win the war, you've got to understand the strategies and tactics of the enemy. And that's true to an extent. There's no doubt about that. But I want to propose to you this morning, because neither you nor I are the commander-in-chief in our army. We have a commander-in-chief who's had a plan from day one. And I think as those who are maybe followers of Christ, or those of us this morning that are maybe in the room, and for the first time we're exploring what does it mean, what does this faith in Jesus actually mean, what I want to propose to you and suggest to you this morning is that it's not so much about understanding, oh, that's the plan and the strategies and the attacks of the enemy, and, we're, and yes, we shouldn't be ignorant and we should be aware, but this morning I want to propose to you that the way in which we recover the soul, the way in which we gain victory in this war that's being waged against us, the way in which we live the life that Jesus Christ designed for you and I is to understand God's plan, to understand his story, to understand what it is he's got planned from day one. Because oftentimes when we come to church, we'll hear about, yes, I, I know I'm, I, I'm a sinner and whatever that kind of means, and, and I know I can't deal with that myself, and I know that Jesus did something for me, but there's a story that God's been unfolding that started way before the cross, way before you and I ever felt or dealt with sin. And this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to understand um, what the story of God. How many of you know the Bible isn't 
66 books that are all kind of put together, and there's like tons and tons of stories. But the Bible is one story. It's God's story. And every page of the book points to, and every chapter in the story points to a central character who is the hero of the story, and his name's Jesus Christ. And so this morning, what I want us to do is I want to give you a framework through which you and I can look at Scripture and understand the story of God and understand how the story of God is and always will be to recover our soul and for us to be restored to all that he had originally planned. And so the story starts over here with creation. You probably know the story, right? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created And what I want you to understand this morning is that God, in creating the world and creating mankind, it's important for us to understand, because sometimes this is a misunderstanding in church world, is that, well, God created us for relationship. And that is true. But I want you to know this morning that God wasn't lonely. God didn't wake up one morning and go, oh, man, I'm lonely. I should create some people to hang out with. See, there's a, the triune Godhead, and forgive me for being a little bit theological right now, but, but there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they existed together in perfect harmony, perfect love, perfect community, perfect affection one for another, perfect in their purpose and in their plan, all things. They were self-sufficient. God had and has no needs. But his glory being expressed through this Godhead, through the Trinity, through the relationships and the contentment, the glory of God spilled out onto the canvas of creation and created all that you and I know. Now, you know that what we experience in life is not the world that God originally created, right? Brokenness, decay, futility. But God created the planet. God created the plants. God created the animals. And then God creates mankind so that all of creation would reflect his glory. See, God is a glorious God and he's jealous over his glory and he pours out his glory. And he says, and we get to be a part of and reflect and share in his glory. And so what we find in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 is God creating all of this to display his glory. And he says, you guys, as human beings, are going to be a part of it. You get to reflect my glory. You get to share in my glory all that you could ever want and ever need to be fully satisfied and taken care of. You're going to find in me. And it was beautiful. In fact, the word that's oftentimes used for creation is the Hebrew word shalom. You've maybe heard of it before because it means peace. But it doesn't just mean peace, it means completeness. It means that everything was as it was meant to be. In fact, it's the idea of rhythm. And even when you look at creation, you realize that God spoke, Jesus accomplished, and the Holy Spirit filled. And there's verses that you can look up and read all about that. But you realize that God created the spaces on the first three days. And then he began to fill the spaces, right? He created the sky and then he filled them. There was rhythm and there was order and everything was as it was meant to be. It was perfect. It was like a symphony where all the instruments were playing together and and it was happening and it was just producing such a beautiful sound and such a beautiful reflection. 
This is what God created. This was God's original intent for you and I. He, says, I'm, he said, I'm inviting you into this. I'm creating you and I'm putting you at the center of it. And I want you to be my viceroys and my ambassadors. And I want you to share in and I want you to reflect my glory. But Adam and Eve, being Adam and Eve, didn't have, they were probably, didn't have the, the patience or the obedience. They were probably a little bit like two-year-olds with pixie sticks. And it lasted two chapters. And Adam and Eve turned and, and, and God has put them in this amazing environment and he's created this beautiful place for them. And he said, everything you need, you're going to find in me. And Adam and Eve, just like Lucifer or Satan, they say, God, that's awesome. But we actually want that glory for ourselves. We want to take it on ourselves. We want to live our own life. We'll, we got this, God. We understand you've created all of this, and we understand that it's for you, and it's just supposed to reflect your glory, but, gee, but we want that for ourselves. And so, in effect, what Adam and Eve did was they shook their fist at God. They turned their back. They went in rebellion, and they said, you know what, God? It's not about my soul being created to reflect you and to glorify you and to depend upon you. It's about me, myself, and I, and I want it for myself. Sounds a little bit like modern culture, doesn't it? Self. And so Adam and Eve, they turn their back on God and they shake their fist at God. And, and in a moment of disobedience, in a moment of rebellion, Adam and Eve open up for all of creation chaos, decay, Romans chapter 8 says that all of creation was thrust into futility. And that which was perfect, that was which was beautiful, that which God had created for our good and for his glory, all of a sudden was thrust into darkness and into despair and into death and into decay. Adam and Eve, all because they said, we want it for ourselves. And it's a little bit like the symphony with all of the musical instruments and the conductor making everything work together and it producing this beautiful sound that just brings peace and rest to your soul, all of a sudden becomes a middle school band. Anyone been to a middle school band concert? Yeah. I've been to lots. They squeak. They squeal. They play out a tune. They're not playing together. You know, in my mind, because I've got a super creative imagination, I see them throwing instruments down and punching each other and all kinds of crazy stuff going on. It's a middle school band concert. That doesn't actually happen, but you know. But what happens is that all of creation, with all of its beauty and all of its intent and all that God had created, all of a sudden is thrown into despair. This is the war that Peter talked about in 1 Peter chapter 2. And it's a war of sin that rages within us, not just against us. And the, uh, Peter's point was that, look, this thing rages against you, but I want you to be careful and I want you to be aware and I want you to find that there's a resolution to this. And so we understand that it's not just something that's external to us, but something that's internal that impacts and affects everything. It would be easy for you and I to sit here this morning and say, well, I wasn't there in the garden when Adam and Eve did that, so I'm kind of just a victim of their choice. The problem with that is that Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Has anybody lied in the last week? My hand's raised. 
The Bible says you lie. The Bible says you break one of the laws. You're guilty of the entire law, right? Here's my point. You're not a victim of something that Adam and Eve done. You're a willful participant in the rebellion and sin against God. Every single one of us is. And so Adam and Eve make this choice and we with them. And so what I want to do right now is I I want us to understand what sin is. Because so often maybe we we don't talk about it. And there's lots of things that we cover in church life. uh, And and in our culture there's all kinds of definitions of sin. Well maybe it's a fault, a mistake, an oops, an ah. You know, we can define it all kinds of different ways. And some people might define it as, well, you broke God's law. And that's actually true. But it keeps it at a kind of a, a distance, something that's kind of uh, uh, more institutional. And I want us to understand this morning that sin, your and my sin, is deeply, deeply personal against God. See, we're created in God's image. And so because of sin, the image of God begins to be corrupted within each one of us. And so this morning, I'd like to leave you with just a working definition that maybe we can ponder and think about over the coming weeks. But what is sin? Well, sin is, it's this attitude of the heart, obviously, and it results, obviously, in actions. 